Well, let's see what the Lord says to us today. Would you take your Bibles, please, and go to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, as we do our Bible study. If you don't have sermon notes, raise your hand and the fellows will hand that to you as they walk by. Otherwise, you find copies in your bulletin. We are doing a series on worship, and some of you who have joined us have, have uh, come in right in the midst of what we were talking about. We're going to pick up where we were last week, but let me just do a little bit of reflection here for a second. Over the years, what we did is we've had an opportunity to do a variety of different mission trips and take the young people. Did we lose everything? Somebody, there we go. They uh, do a variety of different mission trips and take the kids on different places, different events, different spots. And some of them have been very memorable and they had some instances where things didn't quite go the way we planned. I remember one of the trips that we went up to into Nova Scotia that we were there and we were doing things and we had the kids. We were in the parsonage and nobody was living there. We had the kids do their laundry. Two of the boys were doing their laundry at one time and we had gone out and done some projects around the church. Came back in and I heard the, the wash machine was in real great pain. My wife and I went over there and the lid wasn't shut because they had stuffed it so full of jeans, jeans, that we took it all out and we made two full loads that they somehow got into one. And the machine survived. Uh, Speaking of Nova Scotia, do you remember your infamous trip? Wakes them up early in the morning, gets the teens up to go and watch the sunrise. And as they're there, facing towards what he thought was the east, all of a sudden one of the kids taps him on the shoulder and say, isn't that the sun coming up over there? <laughs> we had a group that we, uh, we went and took some to Arizona. Several of you have gone to Arizona on different trips. One of our young men was so clever. We were working on a building in the center picture up there, and he decided to see how long he could get away without being involved with a work project. So while we were all working and you know, hauling bricks to do the walls that several of you men went along with and mixing mortar and do things, he put a two-by-four on his shoulder and just walked around from group to group talking with them for... Danny Hallman, how long did you say this was that you... <laughs> Most of the afternoon. Now, I bring that up because when we went there and did that building project that, that we were working on, somebody else had laid the foundation. We just came and we built the walls that week. Somebody else came in and did the electric work. Somebody else came in and did the plumbing. But we only did one phase of it. Now it's a complete house. They've been using it for years. But we just did our part. Last week, we laid foundation. We started with John chapter 4 that talks Jesus with the woman at the well. And he is speaking to her. And as he's giving the message to her, he lays foundation for New Testament worship. And he makes the comment that God the Father is now looking for true worshipers. That God the Father is seeking after some who will worship in spirit and in truth. And so he gave some foundational ideas that we want to build upon. But let's make sure we understand our foundational truths. What we learned last week is that worship is something that God greatly desires. He's looking for it. He's seeking after it. We made the comment as well that last week that worship has to be in your spirit. And when he says that in John 4, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's your spirit. That it needs to come from your heart. That it needs to be you that are praising God, that you are thrilled with what God has done. That you come here not waiting to get fired up, but you come here for worship already fired up, wanting to speak and to give God praise. It needs to be done in truth. That is truthful, 
in the sense that you're speaking the truth or truth filled, filled with scripture, filled with, with the writings of God's word. It needs to worship by the center uh, focus of worship has to be Jesus Christ where he's talking to the woman and as he says to her, we need to worship in spirit and truth, says, oh, I know that when Messiah comes and the reason she brings that up is because in their belief, the Taka or Messiah would be a restorer of real worship. So the segue there is very, very natural for her to say, oh yeah, when Messiah comes, he's going to teach us real worship. And Jesus says, I am he. And so Jesus makes it clear he needs to be the center of worship. And then as the passage progresses and he shares more truth with her, she goes and gets her friends. They come and the disciples come back. He says, lift up your eyes, look on the harvest. Worship is concerned about getting the gospel out to other people. Not just taking in and getting fed, but wanting to share what we have learned about God. Wanting to give the blessings that we have gotten with our co-workers, with family, with others. So now we've seen those. Let's go to Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, let's build on that foundation. Let's look into the New Testament writers given by one of the apostles who is going to explain a little bit more about what worship involved. In Hebrews chapter 12 and going into chapter 13, there's a phrase that I want you to catch. At the end of chapter 12, he is writing this and he makes the comment at the end of chapter 12 about what is acceptable worship. Let's get a little bit of the sense of the text. Verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaks. He's talking about God who spoke at Mount Sinai. God who spoke, speaks from heaven today. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on the earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn from God that speaks from heaven. Whose voice then in the past shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but I shake the heavens. And this word, yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, those things that are temporary, those things that are physical, as of things that, that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain eternal things, that which God is building in heaven that will last. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved or taken away, the future kingdom, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me give you an alternative translation from the ESV of verse 28 that says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer God acceptable, and the word that you read in the King James service is the word for worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What we've learned, what we've seen just in that little tidbit, is there is a way of worshiping God acceptably, which says there's also a way that is unacceptable worship. And so God is going to describe in this text and then in the following verses, some of what's involved with acceptable worship. Let me rephrase that. Why do we do what we do when we come into worship service? Why why do we incorporate some of the things that have happened that we've already done? What should we be doing when we're here? What does God call acceptable worship? I see in scriptures, in this text and then a couple others, several different ingredients to acceptable worship. One is this. That acceptable worship starts with the right attitude and the right approach towards God Almighty. That when we come together, all of us have to have, in this, uh, in this concept of worship, we have to have the right idea about God. 
We'll back up a little bit in the context. If you go all the way back to verse 18, he's making a contrast of how God spoke on earth and God is speaking in heaven and we need to listen to him. Going back to verse 18, you'll see that the writer is talking about how God spoke when he had Israel in the wilderness. That God spoke to them on Mount Sinai and he describes back in verse 18 that when God spoke and they had that occasion, that all of a sudden in verse 18, look at the verses, he's talking about when God came to Mount Sinai, there was tremendous shaking. There was the storms, the wind, the light, the thundering. There was all these emanations of God's presence there temporarily on that mountain. And he told the people that what they should do is they need to be very respectful. They cannot come. They cannot touch the mountain. If their animal, (coughs) if they themselves came to the edge of the mountain and stepped upon it, they would surely die. You read about that in the next couple verses. In verse 20 and 21, he's talking about God's presence being so awesome. God's presence being so, so massive and majestic. And the people had to respect that. They had to have a holy awe of God. Then he goes on, he says in verse 21, that the people were afraid. They said, Moses, be our representative. You go and speak to God. We're afraid to talk with him. We're afraid to get any closer. He has warned us. So it talks about how Moses went up on the mount, but even Moses was trembling. Moses was fearful in respect because of the awesomeness of God. And the passage helps us to understand that even though we are no longer dealing with Mount Sinai, that God in his throne in Mount Zion in heaven, that when he speaks, he is still majestic. He is still powerful. There are still the emanations of the lightnings and the winds and the sound of his voices, like mighty waters that are running that we read about in Isaiah 6 and elsewhere. His majesty, and look at how he ends this verse, this, this thought. He said in verse 28, we ought to come and we ought to worship him with, he said, with respect and with awe. And then he goes on and he makes the comment in verse 29 as he concludes and he says, when we worship, we need to have this idea of majesty before us. We need to understand that God is a consuming fire. That doesn't mean that God is something out of control, but rather it is the idea that God is something that is, the, that is great. He's the judge. He sees all. He declares what everything is made of. He's a fire that examines. He knows every facet of you. That God is something so majestic and awesome that when we get too close like a fire, we would, we would want to bow back unless we get scorched or, or burnt by that. That God is that majestic. In fact, every time in scripture that somebody saw God in any part of his glory, they fell down as dead men. When we come to worship, we ought not to come with just a pithy attitude of, oh, okay, let's just get this done and over with. We are coming before God Almighty. We are entering into his presence, if you would, and he is still majestic. He is still awesome. He is absolutely amazing. He is one that is above us, powerful, uh, there, there's words that, that I can't give because they just fail me. There's a writer, preacher, Christian author, who talks about the time that he was in a restaurant there in Denver. And while he was in this local little pub in his, in his area of the city, all of a sudden one of his heroes from that football team, the Broncos, came walking and he recognized him. And he was just in awe that that guy would be in the same restaurant he was in. 
And this was his, this football hero. This was his, the guy that he followed. And he finally got up enough nerve after his wife calmed him down for a while. He got up enough nerve and he walked over to the man's, the man's table and he was going to ask for an autograph. But he was so nervous he dropped the pen. He dropped the napkin. He felt like a fool. But he was just so excited to be in the presence of his football hero. And all the guy did was play football. Oh, that's more than I can do. But he was, he was impressed. He said, it made my day, it made my week that I had an autographed napkin from this guy. And then he went to church that Sunday and he reflected on it. And he thought about it. I'm in awe of a man who wrote his name on a napkin. And I'm just kind of sitting in church going through the motions and I hold on my lap the word of God Almighty. He said, it just struck me that we are so caught up with personalities on earth that we forget how our God is so awesome. George Barna, who does a lot of research for churches and and evangelical America, Christendom as a whole, let's expand it. He put out a recent poll that's very interesting. In his recent poll, about three years ago, he put out and he asked in that poll of Americans on the broad scope, why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? And he said his answer just absolutely floored him. He had different possibilities why go to church. To honor and worship God, to do this, to do this, because my family said so, because it's a habit, because it's good for our kids. And he said that the number one reason that people marked was not to honor and worship God, but the number one reason was for personal benefit and pleasure. Why Americans go to church. Now, then in that poll, they, they could answer several different Uh, descriptions of what they meant by that or they could write their own and the top answers that people either wrote or that they marked were what they meant by I go for my personal benefit or pleasure was this I go to church because church makes me feel good about myself I go to church because church helps me to do good things for other people like help the poor I go to church because I go looking for an uplifting encouragement that I need weekly I go to church so it will help me to get to heaven. I go to church because it will increase the number of my prayers that God will now answer. I go to church because it helps to build a good reputation for me in front of other people. Why do you go to church? Now, are any of these things evil and bad? No. But if we're here for our own personal entertainment, if we are here and our sole reason is for me to get something because I want it. I need it. Then, our, then we've missed the main reason why we're here. We're here to honor the Lord. We're here to lift up God. I need that. You need that. It will benefit us if we lift up the God who created us. It'll help us to be able to have strength for the weak when we understand that our God is all-powerful. When we come and we worship Him and He blesses our life, yes, we get some of the side effect benefits that trickle down. But our main goal of being here ought not so that I stand in good standing with others. Ought not so others see me. Ought not be so that I get something from God. No, we're to be here to give God honor and worship. So we need to have the right approach. 
There's something else that's an ingredient, according to this text, that is much needed when we have worship that is acceptable. Acceptable worship includes giving praise and thanksgiving to God. Look at how he said it in this passage. In verse 28, he even makes the comment, whereby we may serve him, or let's back up a little bit, wherefore we receive, who are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, that is, we know that we're on our way to heaven, for those of you who are born again, who've asked Christ to be your savior, that you came to a point where you admitted that you were a sinner and you needed a savior to forgive you of your sins you couldn't do it on your own and it was Jesus and he alone you get promise of a kingdom when you call upon him to be your savior and so he says those of us who have a kingdom that cannot be shaken cannot be put down will not be taken away like the kingdoms of the earth he says in the King James it reads let us have grace literally in the Greek it is let us give thanks grace is thanks Let us give thanks to him. Let's have a time of thanksgiving whereby we may worship God. He talks about it later in chapter chapter 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So one of the reasons we're here is to praise, to give thanks. To count our blessings. Oh, there's passage after passage filled with this fruit. Where we read, I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among much people. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Oh, bless our Lord, ye people. Make the voice of his praise to be heard. We read, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Put it together. God encourages us. He says, I want you to praise my name in song and in word. God wants it to be done out loud, not within the heart. There's nothing wrong with singing out, with just bellowing out our thanksgiving. He says that when we sing, when we give thanks, we should have clarity of mind, understanding, thinking through what we're singing, what we're saying, the words that are coming off of our lips. When others are singing, to listen to the words, to to follow along, to make sure that we are connected with them and that we are lifting up in our hearts as they are lifting up with their voice. Oh, it's so easy that you hear of lyrics being misunderstood. How people will recount how their kids say the wrong words to the hymns. Or that people later on say, when I was a kid, I thought this verse or this stanza of a song, it said this. Such as this from the song, Count your many blessings, when upon my billows you are tempest-tossed. One man said that his kids keep on thinking, when upon life's pillows you are tempest-tossed. They got the words a little bit wrong. Up from the grave he arose. One, sh- one man said, well, when we would sing this, this is what I thought it was saying. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. He thought it was, low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. Just mixing up the words ever so little. B- bringing in the sheaves. Lots of kids will sing, think we're singing, bringing in the she- cheese. It fits in Wisconsin, but it doesn't fit here. You have others who say, stayed upon Jehovah. One of our girls who grew up here used to think that song is, say a bunch of Ola, was what a, what a, in her mind. You have this one. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The angels peck on me, okay, instead of beckon me. This one, amazing grace through many dangerous toils and snares. One preacher said, this is what I thought when I was a kid. I thought they were saying, through many dangerous toils and snails, I have already come. There's this thought, lead on, O King Eternal. I don't know where, where it goes from here, but the child thought the song was, lead on, O King Eternal. 
Or we have victory in Jesus. As one said, he plunged me to victory. He said, I didn't know how this worked because my brother and I got into fights all the time. He punched me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Now, you and I can say, okay, how silly can kids get? How silly can people be in mixing up the words? But the question is, when you sing... Are you singing the words from, with understanding? You get the words right, but is it meaningful? Is it coming from your heart? When we hear, I sing the mighty power of God, are we more thrilled? And, and guys, it was fabulous. It was fabulous. Are we more thrilled that the way that they did it or the message? Does the medium carry what thrills our heart or does the message? By the way, it could, it could and should be both. But the idea is that, okay, even meditative songs, am I involved with it? So when we sing and give thanks, that's important that we're doing it with understanding. Acceptable worship includes praying to God. Hey, you go in scriptures where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, I'm writing these things unto you, this entire epistle and the second epistle, Timothy, so you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the, in the church of God, which is the house of the living God. Now, after he tells us why that, that is written, then we go back and say, okay, what is he saying? How are we to behave in the house of the living God, the church? Well, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what I exhort above everything. First of all, that praying be done for all men. So obviously that when we get together in a church service, prayer is a vital part. That's not a time for us to just close eyes and zone out. It's a time of talking with God. It's a time of meditating with him, of communing with him. He fought, Paul writes the Ephesian church, and after he tells them how to put on the armor, he says, would you do this? While praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, he says, pray for me. Pray for me as a missionary that I would have boldness to open up my mouth. We read in the book of Acts that when they gathered together, they were continuing steadfastly in prayer. They are persecuted. They are beaten. They are sent back by the authorities. They gather together in chapter 4, and the first thing the body does is praise. Lord, what do you have us to do? What do you want us to do? And God is impressed upon the heart to go out and witness. They go out and witness some more. Surrounded by prayer. So when we gather... Prayer is an element that should be a part of our public worship and your personal worship. Let's add to it this. Okay? In Hebrews chapter 13, he brings it up where he says towards the end of the chapter, pray for us. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. He says, but pray for us. I'm right with the Lord. I'm doing what I'm supposed to, but I need you to pray for me that I would continue to be faithful. Prayer is an ingredient. Let's add a fourth ingredient. To have the right attitude towards others around us. To have the right attitude towards others around us. This is critical to worship. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount made this one of the, one of the central issues of worship. Where he has, he, we know in chapter 6, he talks about how when you pray. and He talks about how when you give, that it shouldn't be for show. Even before that, he talks about being right with others. In Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 5, he talks about how if you have ought with somebody, if you have a problem with a brother, with a sister, not just physical, but community-wise, that what you're supposed to do is if there's a problem, and if you're going to say raka to them, if you're going to say that you're in danger of judgment, then his next phrase goes this way. Whosoever is angry without a brother, therefore if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother had ought against you, then he makes a comment, leave your gift before the altar. Think what he's talking about to a Jewish people. 
For those in Galilee, it would take them several days to go to the altar. There was only one in Israel. Make a trip down to Israel, stand there at the temple, and if you have a problem with somebody, make the trip several days back, get things right, then come back and make the sacrifice. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them this is so important that you can't even just justify it away. You don't say, I'll deal with it later. You stop your worship and get right with that person. Make sure there isn't conflict. Make sure there isn't difficulty before you continue in your worship. In fact, we read about this in in other passages. Do you remember the story we talked about just a couple weeks ago about Jesus talking about two men in worship? There was the publican, the tax collector, who was considered the scum of society, and there was the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, I thank you, God, I am not like that person. Derogatory attitude, condemning that individual. No concern about his spiritual welfare, just prejudiced thinking against that individual. And it says that then the publican, with humility, says, God, forgive me, a sinner. And he said, this man went away justified rather than that man. Our attitude towards others is huge in worship. And Jesus cautioned us about it. Go to the book of Romans. Look how Paul writes, join me please. The book of Romans chapter 14. As we read an extended passage. That Paul is writing to the believers in the church of Rome. And he is saying, you've got to be careful about your attitude towards other people. Thinking you're superior. And in this issue, that we're in Romans 14. The issue is, who's got different standards in the church? It happened to be some said, well I am more separated. Because I don't eat the meat that was given to the temple. Or I observe certain feast days. And there's others in the church that are saying, well I'm more spiritual. Because those things don't bother me anymore. And I don't observe those feast days that others did. And there was a debate going on in the church of who's more spiritual. In chapter 14 of Romans, let's pick up where we put here in verse 12. So then, he says, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall, to stumble, in his brother's way. I know and I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him. If it bothers him, then to him it is something he ought not to do. But if your brother be grieved with that meat, you know, you're supposed to be walking charitably. Destroy not him by eating the meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things worships Christ, it's that same word, latrual, worships Christ, is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. He writes about it in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, he ends in verse 28 by our breakup in the book. And look at back in Hebrews 28, he says, make sure we are worshiping in an appropriate sense. Then notice where he goes in applying it. Right after he says that in Hebrews 28, look at chapter 13, where he says, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained the angels unawares. Remember them that are in the bonds, those in prison, as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity 
diversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Jump down further. Verse 15 and 16. By him, therefore, let us therefore offer sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate or share, forget not. The good is literally doing good towards others, being kind towards them, being gracious towards them. And to communicate is helping others with needs. For with such sacrifices, which is a, a worship term, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What do we have? We have this concept that God says that we need to have right attitudes. Years ago, I was telling you the story of how we started this church years ago, back in 1979. We met in that old building there on Cumberland Street that is up for sale again. The church had started, had gone defunct, and then we came when there was only a handful of people left. My brother and I came up from seminary, and he started leading the work. And there we were in that building for several years until we were able to buy this property in 1984 and build the the original building on that side of our properties. But Dave and I worked together for a few years. We came up and Deb and I would come and help on weekends. And then eventually after a couple years, then we uh, came on staff. And so we worked together for five years. He was the senior pastor. I was his assistant. We looked a little bit different then. Okay, and uh, I remember working with, and it worked wonderful. People have asked over the years, does it work that, you know, family members work together? Yeah, it does. It can. It can work well if they can work together well. Now, it doesn't, doesn't happen for all, but for us, it was just a really good thing, a good experience. We knew each other. We had each other's back. We were helpful to each other, except for about a two-month period that we've never shared. I've never shared with people outside my wife. But there was about a two-month period that I don't know what happened. I don't remember the issue. I don't know what it was, but man, did I get an attitude. And I still was working with Dave, and I was his assistant, but it just, there was something that had happened. Again, I don't remember, but I do remember the, the spirit that I had. That something had happened that bothered me, and I didn't go and talk to him. And I didn't address it, and I just let it fester. And over the next days and the next weeks, it grew, and it grew, to the point that I'd be sitting where, even in the old building, we sat in those two seats, okay, was where Deb and I sat. I'm telling, Dave became the worst preacher I've ever heard in those two months. I I got this critical spirit that he couldn't do anything right. He didn't even comb his hair right, whatever he had left. It was, just, it was just anything, everything, to the point that his preaching, I got nothing out of it because he had somehow changed into a, a terrible preacher. Then my brother is an outstanding expositor of the Word of God. For that period of time, he couldn't preach anything, in my mind. He couldn't lead the church. He was just everything he did wrong. You know, I just got to be so hypercritical that it just bothered me. And bothered me that, you know, why doesn't he change? Why doesn't he do this? He should listen to me more. And I'd make suggestions. And and I know, I remember this. I made some really off-the-wall stupid suggestions on a couple things for ministry that I knew he would reject. I knew that anybody in their right mind would reject. But I was bitter. And I just held it. And I was going to just be able to say to him, you never listened to me. And I set him up in my own heart. 
that went on, like I say, for a few weeks, for two months. And I don't know what it was. I don't remember the beginning cause. I don't remember what finally got, a, got my heart. The Lord, I know that. But what passage, I don't remember. But I just remember one day I knew. I knew that I had to stop. It was probably this Holy Spirit. Okay? It's probably Deb telling me, you got to stop this. You got to stop complaining and saying things and being so critical. But I went to Dave and I asked him to forgive me. And I asked him to, to and I confessed to him what I was doing. And, you know, he was extremely gracious. But I, I have never forgotten what it was like for those two months. To the point that says, if there's an issue between myself and somebody else, I can't let that happen again. It's got to be dealt with. Otherwise, my spirit, probably none of you would do this, but if I'm not right with people, I, can, I prove to myself I can become hypercritical. I'm sure none of you have ever had that problem. But Jesus said, if that's the case, if you've got odd, if you've got a problem, you've got to deal with it. You've got to make sure it's right. That, that affects your worship. How's your worship? Did you come with right spirits this morning? Let's add to this. Let's add number five, where he writes in this passage about giving attention to the Word of God. Giving God's Word the attention it needs. Look how he says it in Hebrews 13. That towards the end of the text, he says, I beseech you, brethren. Chapter 13, verse 22. I beg you. I implore you, brethren. Suffer the word of exhortation. The word suffer could be translated, listen closely to. Don't put it off. Don't reject what I'm telling you. Don't, don't get upset over me meddling into your lives, but listen. Let it heal you. Let it work in your heart, these words of exhortation. I especially like whoever this author is. Here's the next comment. It sounds like me at times. For I have written a letter unto you in few words. Do you realize that this is one of the longest epistles in scriptures? But the writer is saying, I didn't say so much. I just wrote a few words. It reminds me of myself. I don't preach very long. It's just really short. And it's like, are you kidding me? You wrote an entire treatise in this text. And he says, but listen to it. Listen to it. Give attention to the word of God. That's exactly what Paul wrote when he writes to the the epistles to the churches and saying, how do you behave yourself in the church? Do you remember how he wrote them? And he says, listen. Timothy, you've got to do something. You've got to put the brethren in remembrance of what I've written you. Then you're a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. But the profane wives' tables, stop it. Don't get involved with that stuff that is all about glitz and show. He says, till I come, give attendance to reading what? Reading bulletins? No. Reading the word of God. Give attention to reading, to exhorting. What? The word of God. To doctrine, to truths of God's word. He says, take heed unto the doctrine. Continue. For in so doing this you shall save both yourself and them that hear you. The importance preacher. Preacher, teacher, to give the word of God. People need the word of God. They don't need opinion. People need to be fed from God's word to carry them through the week. 
It is incumbent upon us who have responsibility to teach the truths of God's word. He says, I charge you therefore before God, the Lord Jesus, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. He says, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come. Well, they will not endure sound doctrine. The time will come where after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having the idea of tickling their ears. He says, but you preach the word. He is commanding the man behind the pulpit to focus on the word of God, to give out the word of God, to make it central so that the individuals don't turn from truth, but they turn to the Lord in, in, in our service. This is the important part of our service that we hear from God. That we have God speak to our hearts. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians how the word of God is so important. Do you remember what's happening in 1 Corinthians? In the church of Corinth, I should say. In the church of Corinth, there's a whole blending of people that are there. And what's happening in that church is they've gotten their groups. They've gotten their favorite preachers and teachers, which is causing division. In that church, they're doing communion. And during communion, they've got things going on that are wrong. But there's one area that they've really been messing up. It is the gifts of the Spirit. Everybody wants miracles. Everybody wants sensationalism. Everybody wants what would really good, you know, give a good show on TV and wow, zow, pow type things and dynamic and dramatic. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And so what's, ha- what's going on is some people were doing the tongue speaking. The tongue speaking at that time was a legitimate gift given to individuals because they didn't have the entire word of God spoken or written. So sometimes God would speak through certain individuals in the church service that those individuals could stand and they would be giving a message directly from God to the rest of the group. That happened in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. Well, what was happening in Corinth is people were looking so much for having that moment, having that opportunity, being God's spokesperson, that it was getting out of hand in the church service. And he writes three chapters about it in order to say, now calm this thing down. It's got to get in because God is not the author of confusion. God does everything decently and... In order. And he, so he writes in there and he talks about these gifts. And he's laying it out very simply. He's saying, You people got, a, got this wrong emphasis on the miracles. You got this wrong emphasis upon the gifts. And he makes several statements in chapter 14 that are very eye opening. And he makes a contrast between gifts, you know, something phenomenal, phenomenal and mystical and magical and miraculous. And he's going to use the phrase prophesying. Prophesying is declaring the word of God. It is four, it could be two things. Telling the future, that's some prophesying. But mostly in the New Testament is referring to not uh, foretelling, but telling forth. You know, just proclaiming God's word. Not predicting, but just proclaiming. And he makes some comments about that that are, that are, True in scripture, but still today people don't want to hear. Still today people say, I would rather have something zao wham pow when I go to church. It'd be cool to see a miracle. It'd be cool to see all of a sudden God appear or an angel show up on the screen. And instead of, instead of the visuals that Pastor Wayne put, wouldn't it be cool to have a hand writing upon the wall? You know, mystically. 
And he writes and he says, now wait a minute, you have underestimated the word of God. And he makes these comments. He that speaks in tongues speaks not unto men, for no man understands him. But he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. He goes on, greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues. He goes on, if therefore the whole church be come together in one place and everybody has this sensational gift of speaking in tongues and somebody who is lost comes walking in and sees this chaotic situation, will they not say you're crazy? He goes on, he says, but if all would prophesy, declaring the word of God and there come in one that believes not or is unlearned, he will be convicted. He will be challenged by all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you. Why? Because he's been confronted with the word of God. He's been shown to the, the scriptures that is a mirror. And by seeing himself as God describes him, he will admit he's a sinner and fall down and worship. The power of the word of God. The importance of the word of God in worship service is far greater than sensationalism and dramatics from the pulpit. I understand that the French have a, a saying, a proverb that has to do with food. And it goes this way. A good meal ought to begin with hunger. Their point is, it re tastes much better if you're hungry. You know that's true. So we ask this question, okay, or a phrase, phrase it this way. Effective worship begins with a hunger for God's word. Is what did you and I come with this morning? Did we come with the ingredient of, I want to hear from God? I want God to speak to me. Do you remember when Jesus is ministering to Mary and Martha? And he comes to their house. And remember he arrives and they're both busy getting the meal ready. Because he and his disciples have dropped in. And so they're putting the meal together, but it says that, that Martha continues, but Mary, Martha's own words, she hath left me. Martha, uh, Mary comes out and she sits and she's at the feet of Jesus and she listens to him speak. Martha is so flustered. She is all upset that she is doing all the work. She's the only one that's busy. She's got to do everything. And she comes storming out of the kitchen. And she basically says, don't you care, Jesus, that my sister has left me to do all the work. Tell her to get up and get in the kitchen. And Jesus rebukes Martha. And he says, one thing is necessary. One dish? I don't know. Or... One, one, you know, man, man lives by the word of God, not by bread alone. Is that what he meant? But then he makes the statement. He says, she hath chosen the better part. She has chosen what is even better than working in the kitchen. She's listening to my words. She's hearing what I say. Ingredient, giving attention to God's word. Okay, this isn't in this text. Okay, but this is a part of worship. Part of worship is financial gifts. I know immediately you're going to say, that's all these preachers do. They preach on money. Okay? But it is a part of worship. Okay, when I take my scriptures and I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, watch what he commands. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so you do, 
he says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, literally put into the collection box, into the treasure box, as God hath prospered him. Can I make an observation? Okay. Collections are not man's idea, it's God's idea. Financial collections and worship was God's idea. Can we go a step further? In Philippians, where a lot of people grab the verse that says, My God shall supply all your needs. It's a truism. But the previous verse is critical. The previous verse says, Paul's writing, he says, I have, Lord, I have all, I abound. He says, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus. By the way, the previous verse says, I can do all things who strengthens me. Do you remember what he's referring to as all things? The previous verse to that is, learn to be content. To be happy with what you've got physically. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Which leads to him to say, I have all. I am abounding. I am full. I have received of Epaphroditus, that is the messenger from the Philippians, the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing. The church of Philippians had sent him a missions gift. And so he's saying that this missions gift was a form of worship, a sacrifice given to God for me to continue God's work. What we have is real clear that financial gifts are a part of worship. Do you remember how Jesus commented on it? He is standing there in the temple one day and he is watching and observing. He sees an old woman come by, well, a widow woman, doesn't give the age, that this woman comes by, a widow, and he's watching what she throws in the collection. And she throws the equivalent of just pennies in our modern, modern system. Just a few pennies. And that's all that she has. And she threw them in there. Did Jesus stop her? It's a yes or no answer. No. Did he say, ma'am, hold it, ma'am. You're a widow. You're excused from giving gifts. No. No. Did he know that she threw everything in? He did. And he doesn't say, ma'am, take it back out. He says, she's a commendable giver. She did, really, she did more than anybody. Which leads me to a conclusion that Jesus approves gifts from all levels of income. That it is in his mind appropriate that we give gifts to him financially. Do you remember there's a story that, that follows up that Martha, uh, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, that after that meal that was prepared and after the brother had been risen, raised from the dead, that just a couple days before Jesus dies, she goes to the neighbor's house where Jesus is eating. She comes in and she starts anointing his feet. She had a bottle of spikenard, which is an heirloom expensive. She broke it, she poured it out on his feet, and she's anointing him. And his disciples sitting over here are going, that's a waste. That's a waste. We could have given that to the poor. By the way, do you remember who's making the most comments here? Judas, because yeah, he's stealing the money. And so he makes, and Jesus says, let her alone. She hath anointed me in preparation to my burial. She hath done what she could, and I'm going to paraphrase, when she could. And he commends her for giving this great gift to him 
that was a financial heirloom that was probably for her retirement, but she gave it to him completely, and he commends her for it. He doesn't say, oh, you'll need that later. You shouldn't do this. He takes it. God, in his wisdom, says, you know something? One of the ways that I know you're genuine is what do you do with your pocketbook? That's where our real treasures are at times. And he says, I want you to show me that you really, really are grateful and give me financial gifts. Give me gifts that are well-pleasing to me. And so when you and I come to worship, we should plan, and not let it be by accident or incident, we should plan to worship with financial gifts. Should I give you another ingredient to to what he says is real worship? Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and let's wrap up with this. In Romans chapter 12, he's talking about giving yourself. And if you would follow, and maybe you need to mark your Bible in Romans chapter 12. We've read it already in the service, but let's remind ourselves what it says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your... I think you said it. Your reasonable service. Do you know what the word is? Latruo. You know what that word is? Worship. This is your reasonable worship that you present your bodies. A living sacrifice. Holy. Acceptable. Part of worship is you and me giving ourselves to God. Let me see if we can just dissect it for a second. Keep on doing this. When you gather together on a regular basis, keep on presenting yourself. You might have done it at teen camp. You might have done it when you were at a revival meetings. You might have done it when you got baptized. But you keep on doing this. You keep on bringing back the idea of that I'm going to serve the Lord. God, I'm yours. I am thine, O Lord. I I truly surrender all. This is to be done by every one of you who is born again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, not just the adults, not just the teens, not just the single or the married. It's to be done by all. When he talks about giving yourself, it's to be done not in just intentions only. I beseech you that you present your bodies. I want you to give God your 24-7. I want you to give God real worship that makes a difference the way you live. That you are saying, God, I'm giving you me. This week, I am yours. So that when I leave here, it's going to make a difference the way that I drive home. It'll make a difference of what I speak about. It'll make a difference of how I work this week. It'll make a difference of how I control myself as far as my temper. I'm giving you my body. I'm giving you not just my time, not just my words. I'm giving you myself in conclusion to worship. He is saying that this would be you giving to God a commitment to holy living. This is saying that you would do this with a commitment that says, I will put off that which is wrong, displeasing to you, and I will let you transform me. Change my thinking. Change my spirit. I'm not going to say, I dare you to. But I'm going to say, God... If I am doing something wrong, if I have thought something incorrect, God, if I, am, if I am struggling with something in your word, transform me so that I am in agreement with you. Change me. 
I'm presenting myself for you to work in me, in my mind, and in my spirit, and in my everyday living. God, please change me. Metamorphize me. Make me different because I feel at times like I'm in that cocoon. And I need to break out. I need to put off some things. Because I know you want me to be all that I should be. You want me to be conformed to Christ. To reach my highest maturity spiritually. So God, I'm yours. You know what that would look like? That would look like you saying, okay, God, no drunkenness. That's something you would want me to put off. But rather what I want to be looking for is joy found in Christ. God, no immoral living. But you want me to be pure holy. No immoral thoughts, no immoral you know, viewing. God, I'm not going to cuss. But rather what I'm going to do is I'm going to have self-control over my speech. I'm not going to lose my tongue in, in anger. I'm going to have self-control. I'm going to be transformed. God, I'm committing that I'm not going to be a complainer and a grumbler. I'm going to be one who is giving thanks. God, I'm not going to be a gossip this week. Instead, I'm going to appreciate people and not find fault. God, I'm not going to be one who's given to lewd speech or jokes, but rather I'm going to speak complimentary. I'm going to speak in a positive way on my dress, my look. I'm going to be fashionable, yet at the same time I'm going to be very modest and I'm going to be looking and dressing in a way that is respectful. I'm not going to be lazy when I go to work. I punch the card and when I punch that card or turn in that time, I'm going to work for that time that I put in. I'm not going to be loafing off. I'm going to do what you want me to do. Not be an eye pleaser at work. That only when the boss shows up, I'm going to do my very best. God, I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be an individual who is honest when I'm studying. An individual when I'm doing a test, I'm going to be honest. An individual that when I say yay or nay, it's true. People can, can depend upon my word. I'm going to change, God. God, I'm committing to you. So you and I have to pause and say, okay, this is part of worship? This is what God is looking for? It's reasonable, therefore. It's acceptable for you and I to take time in our worship time to pause and say, God, what do I give you of my life? What am I going to do for you this week? What am I going to let you change me in? It is appropriate for us at times at the end of the service, just to have quiet meditation, for you to make commitments, for you to make promises, for you to stop and say, how would this affect my work this week? How is this going to affect me at school? God, how is this going to work so that when I am at home, interacting with family, I am more Christ-like? God, what, do you, what does this mean for me? As far as when I'm at school and I play, how am I supposed to change? God, do you want more of my time in prayer to praying for others? Commitment time. Commitment time where we say to God, I'm yours. I want to change. I want to, that's worship. Worship is a, at the end of what you've heard and listened. It's time for you to respond to what you've listened to. It's not a time to say, okay, let's close up shop. Let's get out of here quick. If I beat everybody out, I'll get to the restaurant first. No, this moment in worship is really now when God wants to hear from you. It's appropriate. The singing we've done, that's biblical. The praying we've done, that's biblical. The focusing on the Word of God, that's biblical. The taking up an offering, that's been biblical. 
They are hopefully coming with an attitude of praise. I don't know from your heart. That's between you and God. That's biblical. Preparing your heart ahead of time to say I'm coming with with an awe and a respect to God. That's biblical. And so is a time of reflecting and saying, God, here's what I want to give to you. Maybe today's reflection is, I need to change the way I do worship. I need to really change my expectations. My expectations have been upon everybody else to do stuff for me. But my expectations now have to change that next time I come to worship, I got to come with a better attitude towards God with a willingness to focus on Him and not test what others do. Worship. Giving to God if God spoke to us. Do you remember in His ministry? Jesus goes into the temple starts overturning the tables, shakes up the entire place. He's all upset because you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And you're keeping people from worship. So is it good for us periodically as a group, as worship leaders, to evaluate what are we doing in worship? Are we leading where there's real worship and enablement of that. Yeah, I think that's good. I think what's even better is for you and I to ask this question. God, if you want to throw some things out of my heart that I do when I, when I do public worship, let me know what they are. I'll help heave them out the door. I need to make some changes.